Well, please do take a seat. Um, Dan is going to come and preach to us this evening from God's Word, but before he does, I'd like to invite Victor up to read tonight's passage. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 26 uh, in your Red Church Bibles, and that will be found on page 298. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakilah facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had laid down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army camped around him. David then asked Achimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, son of Zariah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying inside the camp with his spear stuck into the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying round him. Abishai said to David, Today God has given your enemy in your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, The Lord himself will strike him, or in his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head, and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw that they, no one knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping, because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you who calls to be the king? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guide your lord to the king? Someone came to destroy your lord, the king. What, have you, what you have done is not good. As surely as the lord lives, you and your men must die, because you did not guide your master, the lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and the water jug that were near his head? Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is, my lord the king. And he added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done, and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my lord the king listen to his servant's words. If the lord has incited you against me, then he may accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, may they be cursed before the lord. They have driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, Go serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea, as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son. Because you considered my life precious today, I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Here is the king's spear. David answered, Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord gave you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed. 
David, my son, you will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way, and Saul returned home. Thank you, Victor. I'd like to invite Dan up now, um, and as he does, I'm going to pray for him. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have together this evening, and that you, uh, and that we can have your word spoken to us. We thank you for the time that Dan has prepared this passage, and we ask that you would use him tonight to speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts and our minds to hear what you are saying to us. Uh, use Dan now, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, please do keep that uh, passage open in front of you. Well, I don't know about you, uh, but when you think about it, flying on a plane is just a bit weird, isn't it? I say weird because everything seems to suggest that it won't work. Uh, You've got this enormous, heavy lump of metal, and somehow it manages to take off. It manages to glide through the air, and, and then it manages to touch back down again, all with incredible ease, it seems. And yet logic seems to say, you look at it and you're like, how should that thing be able to fly? And you know, you, you get that moment when you're up in the air and, uh, and then the seatbelt sign comes on because, you know, the, the plane's experiencing turbulence, uh, everything is shaking and you're thinking uh, something is really wrong here. Uh, this isn't how it's meant to be. And then, you know, you get the, the captain come over on, on the announcement and he says, oh, no, it's okay, ladies and gentlemen, don't worry, don't panic. It's just a bit of turbulence and you're there in 34B thinking, yeah, I know, he said that, but it doesn't look like it's going to be okay uh, because everything seems to suggest something's wrong and you've got to trust that the pilot knows what he's doing and that he's got things in control, even when it seems like everything is out of control. And you know, in our own faith, we're often in situations where it can feel the same. Trusting God when everything seems to be pointing in other directions. I mean, does it look like at school, as a follower of Jesus that you belong to an eternal, glorious kingdom that will never end. That you are, as 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, God's special possession, part of his holy nation. Does Does it feel like that? Does it look like that at school? When you're ostracized and you're kept out of things. When things in life hit rock bottom, does it look like God's in control? Does it look like he's working Well, do you know, we're in 1 Samuel, and and Dave last week helpfully gave us a refresher of the story so far in the passage uh, we're looking at this evening. And this evening, we've got the two main characters uh, of the book. We've got David, and we've got Saul. Uh, Saul was the first king to rule over the people of Israel. But as we've seen, as we've been going through, through, Saul, he doesn't honor God as king. And therefore, God has rejected Saul as king. It says in chapter 16, uh, verse 14, it says, The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And so in place of Saul, well, God appoints and anoints his chosen king, David. And before that verse in chapter 16, it tells us that 
when it tells us that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, well, in chapter 16, verse 13, it says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And so we've got these two kings in Samuel. Saul, the one that the Lord has rejected, and David, the one that God has promised will be king, the one who's been filled with God's spirit and anointed to be the ruler of his people. And yet, despite that decision taking place, that moment happening back in chapter 16, at the moment, despite all of this, Saul is still in power. He is still king over Israel, and he's out on the hunt trying to kill, trying to destroy David, the one who is meant to be the future king. And David's had to escape. He's had to take himself to the wilderness to try and elude Saul and his army. And tonight, you know, if we had to sum up uh, this passage that we're looking at uh, this evening, well, we're going to see that David trusts that God will bring God's king into God's kingdom at the right time. Let me say that one more. David trusts that God will bring God's king into God's kingdom at the right time. Because, you know, what's amazing about this story is it's, it's real life Jason Bourne, James Bond kind of stuff. Uh, you've got King Saul. He's, he's out with his 3,000 specially selected Israelite troops out on a look to try and destroy King David. And after Saul, he's given some kind of intel by the very helpful Ziphites as to where David is. Saul and his men travel to that area and they set up their camp for the night. But David, he spots Saul and his men coming. And he's so he sets out with his spies to see the place where he's camped. And in verse 6, you'll see David ask one of the strangest, one of the most daring questions. He says, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? Oh dear, what, David, what has David got planned? And you know, we see that after Abishai, he puts his hands up, he puts himself forward for this daring operation. And the two of them, David and Abishai, head down in the dead of night to Saul's camp. And they manage to stand right over Saul as he's sleeping. And Abishai, he sees this opportunity and he pleads with David in verse 8 to strike Saul down with a spear. And it's in this extraordinary moment where David and Abishai, they've, they've bypassed all of Saul's security and they stand towering over this man that is out to destroy him that wants David dead, and David tells Abishai, verse 9, look with me. David tells Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? He says, as surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, 
or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head, and let's go. David, instead of striking Saul down, he chooses to leave him alive. And he takes Saul's spear. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because if you remember, that's the spear that Saul had launched at David, trying to kill him earlier in 1 Samuel. And he takes the spear, very symbol of Saul's power. And and once David had crossed back over the hills to a safe distance, he cries out to tell this army before him what he's got up to during the night. And at the end of the passage, where well, we see that David and, and Saul, they have this conversation. They begin talking with one another. David asking Saul why on earth he's, he's come out to kill him when he hasn't done anything wrong. What has he done wrong? He's just spared his life, not once, but actually twice in 1 Samuel. He's not guilty of anything. And Saul, seeing David stood there on the hill with his spear in his water jug, well, he knows that David could have killed him. And in verse 21, Saul says, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong." He confesses to David, and yet, even after Saul says this, you sense that David sees through these words. I mean, Saul even says, I'm going to try not to harm you. Like, that doesn't fill you with great confidence, does it? And David says in verse 22, he says, Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. And we see that at the end, Saul blesses David, and it ends with them going their separate ways. David went on his way. Saul returned home. And you get to the end of the passage and you really wonder why on earth David has allowed Saul to go. Why has he kept him alive? I mean, he could have totally justified striking Saul down, couldn't he? Saul was trying to kill him. He's been pursuing him with 3,000 people. David would finally then be king. He would have returned from being out in exile, being out in the wilderness. No more running for David if Saul's gone. No more hiding for David. He could be king. It could have all ended that night. But you know, I just love David's trust and confidence in the Lord. I mean, think about, let's think about it. He's got his, he's got his enemy the one who's been pursuing him, hunting him down, keeping him in exile in the wilderness, the one who's actually keeping him out of his inheritance, as it says in the passage. He has him right in front of him, and he's got his trusty sidekick pressuring him to take his life, and David leaves him. He's one spear away from having the kingdom to himself, from receiving everything that God was going to promise. And David goes, no, not my time, God's time. God will deal with this. God will provide. God will act. You know, we saw last week when the story with Nabal, 
And we know from that story that God is more than able to remove people that are a threat to King David. And so David thinks, well, if God dealt with Nabal in his time, well, then he will deal with Saul in his time as well. David trusts that God will bring God's king into God's kingdom at the right time. And you know, ultimately, when we look at this story, when we look at King David, we should see how this is pointing us to the ultimate king that God has sent. How this points us to King Jesus. And isn't Jesus the one who perfectly shows us what it looks like to trust that God will bring God's king into God's kingdom at the right time? Do you know, if you think back to the story that uh, with Jesus in the wilderness... And he's being tempted by Satan. And, and Satan, he, he shows Jesus and he tempts Jesus by showing him all the kingdoms of the world, all of their splendor. And Satan says, all of this I will give to you. He said, if you bow down and you worship me. And yet Jesus responds by saying, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus was offered everything in the world. The kingdoms, all of their spender, right at that moment. Maybe he could have started his rule as king overall. But no, Jesus trusted that God will bring his kingdom at the right time. And he honoured God by doing it God's way. Even when you think that by doing it God's way, it would lead to a cross. It would lead to being executed on that cross. And you know, as we finish this evening, I've just got two short application points for us as we close from this passage in 1 Samuel. And the first one is trusting God despite what it looks like. Trusting God despite what it looks like. You know, for David in our passage this evening, everything looked like, on the surface of things, that it wasn't going his way. For someone that had been anointed and heralded as the future king of Israel, it didn't look at this moment very promising for him. He's on the run. He's hiding in a cave. He's not in a palace. He's been hunted by thousands of soldiers. He's literally in the wilderness, while another king, a king that God had rejected, remains in power pursuing him. It doesn't look all that promising in that moment, does it? Maybe some of David's men started to look around thinking, is this really God's king? Because it doesn't look like it. And yet, despite what it looked like, David was unmoved. And his confidence was in God and his promises, and certainly not in what the present situation looked like. And, you know, throughout this passage, we see that whilst it might have looked like God wasn't in control, God was very much in control. With God being the one that it says, put Saul and his men into a deep sleep. With God the one last week that struck down Nabal. Despite what it looked like, David knew the reality He knew the reality and he trusted that God was the one who was in control. He was the one that reigned sovereign over all. And do you know, for us here this evening, do you know, there might be so much on the surface of things that make us question 
whether God is in control. Do you know, Christianity can often be viewed as some as weak, can't it? It looks so divided with so many groups. It's irrelevant to the modern day. Church buildings getting turned into supermarkets. Do you know, when it seems that maybe we spend our weeks around people and no one around wants to know about Jesus. No one wants to talk about Jesus. No one wants to hear about what he's done. Does it look like God is working? Does it look like the gospel message is powerful? Does it look like it's life-changing? Do you know if you're a Christian sitting in an Iranian prison cell for following Jesus, does it look like God's in control? And yet this evening, our passage shows us that despite what it looks like to us, to everyone around, God is still in control. God is still working. And God's promises will always be fulfilled. And David lived knowing and trusting the reality of God's control and faithfulness. That was his foundation every day. And he demonstrated that trust by leaving Saul to be in God's hands. Everything looked like it was pointing one way. But David knew that God was in control. And finally this evening, trusting God despite the weight. Trusting God despite the weight. You see, not only does David trust that God will bring God's king into God's kingdom despite what it looks like, he also trusts that it will be at the right time. For David in our passage, the kingdom, the throne, was literally right in front of him. And yet David chooses to wait. And his decision to spare Saul shows that. He chooses to wait. He's so conscious of not laying a hand on God's anointed. Despite him being a rejected king, he wants things done God's way, not his way. And you know, so much of the Christian life involves waiting, doesn't it? Ultimately, this evening, we wait for Jesus to come back. We wait for God's king to bring his kingdom. And you know, even though it's been 2,000 years since Jesus lived and he ascended into heaven, we live waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. And not just we're waiting, but we're waiting when everything seems to be pointing in a different direction. And you know, just because we're waiting this evening, it doesn't mean like David, God is not working. It does not mean he's not in control. And it doesn't mean he's not bringing about his promises. Do you know, it's so easy, isn't it, to lose sight of this future promise in this time that we wait. It's easy to get distracted, to start living our way rather than God's way until he fulfills those promises. Do you know, I can remember, especially being a bit younger, uh, thinking that Jesus uh, and his kingdom that will eventually come, it's miles away. It's been 2,000 years. 
We've got plenty of time. When will it happen? Is it going to happen? And so it becomes easy to lose sight and to lose our way as we wait, to maybe forget that God is still in control. He is still working. And that even when it looks one way, he will certainly bring about what he's promised. And so therefore, this evening, surely it's a call for us to wait, trusting in God, living his way, not our own way. And to let the certainty of our king's future return when he brings his kingdom shape our waiting now, living his way. Well, do you know, we're going to take some time now to discuss some questions around our tables and to talk through some things. Uh, Some questions will come up on the screen, uh, hopefully. There we go. Uh, So we're going to spend this time and then Josh... Uh, we'll come back and lead the rest uh, of our uh, time this evening. So why don't we spend uh, these next few moments discussing those questions around our tables.